is advised. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Art Star Scene Radio on Radio Free Brooklyn. We are live. It is February 17th, 2024, 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. And I'm very pleased to say that my guest today is Fly Orr. Hey, hi. I wanted to thank you first for having me here. And I want to remind the audience that discretion is advised. <laughs> we have been just talking nonstop since since you got here. So that's a good sign that things are going to go well. And I just I have so much uh, respect for you and uh, just a lot of stuff to get into. And I want to start with... Um, you wanted to mention a, a radio station that... Oh, yeah. Um, since we're here at Radio Free Brooklyn, I wanted to give a shout out to all my old Steal This Radio peeps. And um, this was a pirate radio station that we started. Um, I used the word we. I mean, it was a group who, who really instigated it. I was just kind of on the fringes and, and doing some... Uh, broadcasting but uh steal this radio was first broadcast out of 297th street which is where i live and uh it became uh more of a regular radio station moved to uh first floor in 209 and it was really great it was like all these incredible uh different shows about you know and it was different people in the neighborhood like there'd be the punks and there'd be like the gardeners and there'd be like the hardcore squatters and then there was kids programming there was a hip-hop show where you could call in and freestyle so it was all these different um different types of broadcasting but this was back in the days when it was illegal you know and things got things got a little hairy and uh the fcc was on the tails of str and they even brought um a federal agent out of retirement in order to shut down STR. And they, they had to move to the Sixth Street Community Center. And eventually it, it got shut down. But then there was like there was a whole fight through the courts. And that's a whole different story. So I just wanted to give them a shout out. You know, Jason Black Hat, Dog Boy, all the all the old school people there. I couldn't name a big long list, but but yeah, so here I am at Radio Free Brooklyn. It's very cool. Yeah, uh, and I was also talking right before the show <laughs> about um, some inspiration I got through ra- the documentary Radio Unnameable about Bob Foss, and you had been associated with him. Well, I was a guest on his show um, definitely once. I not sure if I was invited back because uh, I think he was a little irritated with me being bossy or something. But the, I used to co-host a show, uh, WBAI, that's where Bob Foss was. Um, I used to co-host a show with Paul DiRienzo. It was really his show, but he very, very generously called me a co-host and had me come on all the time. Um, and so I got to know a bunch of the, the folks at WBAI. And, um, and so I, I ended up being guests on a bunch of those shows. But what I would do with Paul when we were doing the show, Let Him Talk was the show. Um, I think it was Wednesdays, 1 a.m. or something like that. Um, and at the beginning of the show, I would like give him like this pile of CDs or whatever and just tell him what was there. 
And then he would decide if he wanted to play anything or not. So I think I did the same thing to Bob Foss. And I think he thought I was just <laughs> telling him, like, play all these right now. <laughs> yeah, we do have uh, two CDs that you brought with your music on them. And uh, if we get to it, we'll, we'll get to it. But um, uh, let's start with some of the things you had texted me earlier that you felt you wanted to talk about. Crash wor- Worship. At the gas station. Oh, right. Okay, so I had been in New York for a while at that time. My whole origin story, coming to New York, all that stuff is very complicated. I mean, it's fun and dramatic, but it's super complicated. You want to talk about a little bit of that first? I'm interested. I'm I'm fascinated. Fascinated. I am. Well, I, you know, it it might turn into a long story, so please That's cut fine. me off. No, please cut me all. off. I start to gr- ramble because you have to hear the crash worship story. It's really good. We'll get to but it. But I came to New York in January. It was like the first of January or something, nineteen eighty-eight, and came to New York, um, freezing cold. I mean, we had winter back then. We had actual like, I remember winter. crazy winter. It was like well below zero. And, you know, I was a punk chick. So I got on my, you know, I got on my fishnets, my black mini skirt, my leather jacket. <laughs> you know, it was pretty damn cold. The first person I met was uh, Jim Power Mosaic Man, right? Oh, yes. Yeah, I know him. Yeah. So that's like a really cool person to be mm-hmm. the first person that you meet. Right. So um, so I ended up staying uh, at his squat that night and I ha- I was with a friend also. But that was quite the experience. I did a comic about that, which I will share with you later. But just to say it was like a real good, hardcore, freezing cold introduction to New York City squatting. Right. And so. After that, I ended up just coming to New York a lot, and I eventually kind of moved here. I landed at ABC No Rio, and uh, I was uh, doing, like, setting up these performance gigs with Louis Cherno, who was the director of, of ABC No Rio at the time. And so we were doing these, like, performance exchange things. Um, we did between Toronto and New York. That's when I met your brother. Okay. That's when I met your brother. Right. Here, let me just. Talk. And you had done uh, cover art for one of his CDs for the psychopathology, psychopathology <laughs> of everyday life, uh, which was part of King Missile three. I love the artwork that I did for that. Me too. Um, I was, you know what? I was, I was very inspired for all those really weird creatures. I was very inspired by the artist Posada. You know, it's like the uh, Mexican artist. You people out there, if you haven't seen his work, it's amazing. And, you know, maybe you won't see how I was inspired if you look at the artwork, but it definitely inspired me. But I, uh, I also did, um, a, uh, the artwork for a seven inch. Um, and it was the one about, like, I love Martin Scorsese. It's oh, yeah. like, uh, I want to uh, rip out his uh, lungs and yeah, eat them. Uh, or... It's it's just called Martin Scorsese. And, and and yeah, it's 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 a crazy piece with a lot of violent imagery because Martin Scorsese's films are very violent. Well, it did come to his ears. Scorsese did hear the song. Someone oh, brought wow. it to him. And he didn't get it. He just, he thought it was like threatening or something. (laughs) 
Well, I don't know. You know, there's this certain like Lower East Side, je ne sais quoi, that, you know, a lot of people maybe not being in the context of of our, uh, you know, of our milieu back then might not get it. But the artwork I did, I was so proud of it. And, you know, John S. Hall, Face Boy's brother, seriously saved my life. <laughs> um I was in New York. I was first staying at ABC in Rio, and then I was like sleeping on the stage at the Gargoyle Mechanique Lab, which was another performance space that we still have to tell the crash worship story about. But John S. Hall, Faceboy's brother, um, King Missile, amazing, amazing writer, amazing human. He let me stay at his apartment when he was on tour, and it literally was, you know life-saving, sanity-saving, because I didn't really have anywhere to live. And it's one thing that I will never forget is his great generosity and also uh, getting me to do the artwork for... Well, our, we, we, we do, when we play someone's music, they get a, they get a little bit of money, a few cents. So how about we play Martin Scorsese? Oh, yes, yes, right. yes. I wish that you guys could see the artwork. Maybe it's online somewhere. I don't know. That was back in the day. Martin Scorsese. Wow. King Missile that, off the Happy Hour album. And you're listening to Art Star Scene Radio on Radio Free Brooklyn. I have not heard that in a long time. I haven't heard it in a while either. That you're is, sitting here cracking up. Awesome. That's so fucking hilarious. Because yes. I was picturing Scorsese listening it I and know. Like, taking it literally. <laughs> It'd be so cool if he actually came to a King Missile performance and saw him do that, right? <laughs> But yeah, yeah, King Missile and John, it's like, uh, yeah, one more 
outstanding uh, piece, of course, is Detachable Penis. So that one, that one is another one you guys should go look it up, listen to it. Um, but yeah, John S. Hall was one of the early folks I met. It's like Jennifer Blowdryer, um, Zero Boy, David Huberman, Roger Manning, um, the Mongol Bitches, Robin Glowsmith. Like Who all the Mongol Bitches tons again? Tons of people. Hmm? Who were the Mongol Bitches again? It was Lisa and Laura and... Uh, I can see your face, but I, I'm not, I have an old, one of those old brains that where you can like see the face, but you've yep. been named, it'll come to me at some point. I, well, I'll, I, I'll, I, I, they're, they're familiar. And of course, everybody else that you just named, I'll, I have, I've, yeah. I've known and or worked with. But yeah, um, uh, yeah, he was, he was part of like one of the first uh, exchange performance spoken word things that we did um, that I, I worked with Louis Cherno on from ABC Norio. And uh, some some of the Purple Institution people in Toronto, um, but yeah, so I I that was kind of my my first uh, introduction into the whole performance scene. I actually first when I came to New York, and I didn't know anyone. I met you know I met Jim Mosaic Man, but I would find these flyers and like readings or whatever, and I ended up going to one that was so cool, and I had all these people. You know, that would later I would I would collaborate with and and, you know, and do all this stuff. And now I've known them forever. But it was just it was so cool being someone. And I just like it's kind of like I just wandered in mm-hmm. and there was all the Lower East Side luminaries, mm-hmm. <laughs> the downtrodden, <laughs> um, you know, head in the gutter, eyes at the stars, kind of uh, Lower East Side performance uh, stuff and well yeah so that and then you know and then that led me to ABC No Rio and Matthew Courtney and his Sunday Roger calls them Sunday go to meeting which is kind of like church right Sunday go sure. to meeting um, but but he called it that because it was it was kind of like church for Lower East Side performers and, and poets yeah so so yeah it's like um, John, your brother also, and uh, I met like with this with all these amazing people, and so, and I was living at ABC Noria for a while, and quite involved in what was going on there, and that's a whole story that I'd rather save that for another day. But what happened was I ended up moving out of ABC Noria and over to the Gargoyle Mechanique Lab. On, 28th Avenue B. Yes, yes, right beside the gas station. And the gargoyles were awesome. They became just very quickly very dear friends of mine. There was um, Steve Jones, Tim Sweet, Loyan Beausoleil, and there was a lot of people who were, um, who, were who were kind of regulars who worked on stuff, but uh, we called the primary people were called immediate gargoyles. Okay, (laughs) And it was cool because Steve was doing all this uh, digital stuff, right? And I had actually started doing digital graphics in 1988. So I'm one of the, I'm one of the, like the early digital graphics designers. Um, But he was also doing some really cool music and stuff and just like weird stuff. And, uh, and Tim Sweet also um, doing like weird kind of electronic music and we had a little 
uh, I don't want to call it a band, but we, we were collaborating on some stuff and we called ourselves, well, I think Tim Sweet came up with a name. It was like the No Age Wonder Plumbers, okay. something like that, <laughs> which I don't know. Well, um, here's an interesting connection that you and I have. One of the things I got to be known for was hosting my open mic, my Sunday night open mic, which I did for 678 weeks. The uh, okay. first 575 consecutive, didn't miss a week. And it it uh, started at Gargoyle Mechanique. And here's something maybe you don't even know. You started it. At Gargoyle? Mm-hmm. Well, actually, what happened was Matthew stops doing the Sunday open mics at ABC in Rio. So there was nothing going on. So you were like, okay, let's do it here. And so I started emceeing it. And to be honest, like um, I had no idea how to perform or do anything. And, uh, but I just did it <laughs> and it was really fun. And uh, it was very popular. And uh, one thing I was going to say, I wanted to tell you the story also about about Gargoyle. And yeah, I met you at Gargoyle. And, and when you decided that you didn't want to host it anymore, they asked me to do it. And I only put my name on it when I moved to Surf Reality. It didn't really feel like mine. Uh, and then, as many people know, that space burned down. I did two weeks at the gas station before I found Surf Reality. And then once I got to Surf Reality, it felt like... It felt like, okay, I can put my name on this now. Yeah. I never really went. I only went a couple times to the surf reality ones, but it did. It had that old school feeling, but it was kind of a different group of people, you know? Yep. But it was still that same kind of like really cool, like weird, uh, you know, out there kind of thing. Lower East Side, New York kind of thing. But uh, one thing that happened when I was uh, staying at the Gargoyle, we used to put on a lot of shows, right? Um, like we'd have, we did a lot of art openings. We did some music stuff. We would have bands come to play, like not huge bands. And it was mostly like, mostly like more of the weird experimental music kind of thing. So um, Crash Worship was coming to New York. So you know, we wanted to do some shows with them, but there's not, have you ever seen Crash Worship? No, there's, but there's let's like get a, to that Crash Worship yeah. at the gas station. So we couldn't do it. I'll just to say, we could not do it inside the gargoyle. So there's always a lot of fireballs and drumming and like blood throwing around and, and, uh, and white paint, et cetera. Um, so we, we started the show. We opened the show, me and the No Age Wonder Plumbers. And uh, there's actually a recording of it. It's pretty cool. So then Crash Worship comes on and they're doing their like metal banging and and, uh, fire. Fire was a big part of their thing. And one thing was like throwing the fireballs around. I got hit by fireballs whenever I did anything with those guys. (laughs) Um, But what happened was, okay, somebody complained about the noise. Probably the person uh, right beside the gargoyle because they hated us when we had shows but um and i you know i have empathy for them now (laughs) very much a lot of empathy but at the time we were like oh what's wrong with those people so anyway they there was this big like uh you know they came because we were like there was all this fire and all this crazy loud like screaming and banging and um so the cops came and yeah, this was at the gas station. And for those of you who've never seen the gas station, please Google it, look it up. 
it it was insane. It was just this. How can amazing... they find it and, and not just a regular gas station? Do uh, you remember what the address was? I, I Rivington's. Don't... If you mention Rivington School, okay, yes, because Rivington School did all that amazing metal sculpturing. It was incredible. It was amazing. It was basically like this burned out actual gas station, and the pumps were still there, and it was just you know, and they had this like you know a gas station, but completely gutted building. Um, and then, yeah, this crazy, amazing, like Mad Max style fence going all the way around it. Linus was always working on something. Always working yes. on something. Yeah. <clears throat> yes. Yes, Linus. Shout out to Linus. Um, so what happened was the the police came and they, they were trying to break up the show and they kind of came in and there was a lot of people there and um and they were and they were trying to um they were trying to close this down but there were so many people there where you were kind of started pushing them out punks fight back yo punks will fight back <laughs> oh yeah and so so uh so we're trying to push them out and so it turned into kind of a brawl right and um i remember uh my friend helena was like yelling at me to give her the fire extinguisher, right? She's like, give it to me, give it to me. I thought, you know, there's a lot of fire with crash worship. I thought, oh, there's a fire she has to put out. But she took the fire extinguisher, she started like like ramming it at the cops. Like it was like one of those like medieval battering rams, which was hilarious. But we we ended up like pushing them out and, and getting the gate shut. I mean, there was a lot of us and, you know, people didn't care. Uh, and so we locked them out. So they're all outside. All the cops are like, they're, they're, they're having a siege, right? They're just waiting for us to come out. So what we did, we all like went to the back and we climbed over the fence because the gargoyle was like <laughs> right beside the gas station. So we all uh, climbed the fence and we went through the gargoyle and out the front doors and we see the police and they're like waiting for us to come out. So we, like, <laughs> so we go over and we're standing around and we're like, what's going on? <laughs> It, yeah, that was that was pretty damn funny. Yeah, and you know that that, that would probably be the ninth precinct. Oh which yeah, was so fucking corrupt. Yeah, you yeah. Know, so yeah, the you, notorious yeah ninth precinct. Yeah, yep. East Fifth Street. Yep. Yeah, they were they were bad. They were bad back in the day when I was uh, when I was uh, about thirteen years old. Me and my friends, uh, I know that my friend Norman Spiller was there. It was probably me, Norman, Robert, and Michael. We hung out all the time. And we were smoking a joint in front of a building. And this old guy comes up, and we get up and get out of the way. And he goes into the building. But I guess there was something he found threatening about us, even though we politely, we were never mean to old people. We weren't those kinds of kids at all. Uh, we were respectful, but he called the cops. And uh, this one cop, Norman, just, he finds the joint that we, you know, threw when, when we saw them approaching. And Norman describes it like this, that the cop basically punched me in the face with the joint. And... Uh, they were, they were, you know, we were kids and they're fucking bullying on us. Yeah. And it was, we didn't, 
other than smoking pot, which wasn't, which was illegal. It was. We weren't, we weren't doing anything wrong. It was crazy illegal back then. That was yes. nuts. Yep. You know, yeah, I love when the police are like, you broke my fist with your face. With your, <laughs> you broke my fist. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Uh, fortunately, I wasn't bruised up or banged up. I didn't have anything to explain when I got home, but that was a shitty experience. The Ninth Precinct, they, they, they were really, really a shitty precinct. I think they still are, but I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, the neighborhood has changed so much by now that the police vibe is not even there anymore. It used to be like an occupied territory. I know. Right? And uh, it used to look like a burned out, bombed out neighborhood. And like so many tenement buildings have been burned down. You know, when Koch came into the mayoral office, um, in I can't remember when, it was in the 70s, right? And the city was broke and all the services, all the city services to the uh, lower income, in quotations, neighborhoods, uh, got pretty much got suspended, you know? So it's like... Uh, it's no trash pickup and and just like no no city services everything falling apart and a lot of the landlords at that time started started torturing their buildings to get the insurance money mm-hmm. and and or just abandoning them mm-hmm. you know and i bet those people are not happy now no they're not no <laughs> but, they're not you know they didn't it was it was better for them to burn their building down and get the insurance money rather than pay the taxes or whatever or the upkeep of the building and that's when see it's like in the 70s and then in the 80s um you know there was the homesteading movements i i believe they started in the 70s and became very popular but i think they became so popular that the city wanted to discontinue Mm -hmm. it but there was a you know there was a a lot of people organizing in the neighborhood. Uh, Chino, the Charas folks, the collective, mm-hmm. Armando Perez, like just um, a lot of community action was going on. So there was this, the homesteads, which was, you know, you'd, you'd be quote unquote given a building or buy it for $1, but you basically had to rebuild it, mm-hmm. you know? And, um, and so there was a lot of community support for that kind of program. And, um, Chino Garcia especially was, um, very much involved with, uh, the formation of a lot of the organizations that helped, uh, helps people who were in buildings that had been abandoned by the landlord um, uh, there were certain programs developed to help those people transition into owning the buildings. And there was a the homesteading program, which I was just talking about. And then there was the squats, right? And squats were a little different from the homestead buildings um, because uh, this, the whole thing about squatting is, you know, the definition basically is that you are occupying a space without the owner's uh, permission, mm-hmm. right? So it was it was more of a direct action. Um, uh, Michael, the late great Michael Schenker, uh, termed it squat steading uh, because there was, you know, not all the squats in the Lower East Side were were organized by groups who wanted to rebuild them and who wanted to like recreate affordable housing. Not all the squats were like that. There, I know some of yeah. them were just people who were 
had had a lot of problems and not a lot of skills. Yeah, but also there was uh, drug dealers who controlled uh, a bunch of the buildings. And I don't want to get into too much about talking about the gangs or the drug dealing, but just to say it was like that was a really, really big issue back then, and especially on 13th Street, because there was a lot of squats on 13th Street that were very organized and people working on rebuilding them. But then also on 13th Street, especially, there was a lot of drug dealing going on. Mm -hmm. So, And that was a big problem in the neighborhood. And it was also a problem when people um, mistook uh, the squatting movement, we'll call it that. But a lot of people would mistake that for... Um, you know, being in that genre of, you know, just using a building to um, to like deal drugs or do other illegal activities. But our the squatting that we organized was or the squat steading, I should say, um, was uh, occupying the buildings, but being organized and learning how to rebuild tenements. Ten, the, the building I moved into, 209, was gutted in a fire. The whole East Wing was gutted in a fire in 1990. I got this stuff to read, and then we'll get back to this. Maybe we'll get to your uh, your Gigi Allen at the gas station. I'd love to hear about that. Uh, let's see. Come celebrate independent music communities at the 5th Annual New Colossus Festival, a five-day showcase festival taking place March 6th through 10th at eight independent music venues on the Lower East Side. This year's festival will feature over 130 emerging artists from all over the world, as well as the Ditto X NYC24 Music Conference and Networking Event. Also, 13-foot python, monster trucks. No, I'm kidding. Be sure to swing by Arlene's Grocery on Wednesday, March 6th for the new Colossus Festival welcome party presented by yours truly, Radio Free Brooklyn. Information regarding badges and show schedules can be found at www.newcolossusfestival.com. And hey, folks, Radio Free Brooklyn... Brooklyn's mission is to provide a free and open platform to our community and promote media literacy, education, free expression, and public art. We rely rely primarily on donations from listeners like you. Every dollar helps us stay on the air and allows us to continue our work in the community. We are a 501c3 nonprofit organization, so all contributions are tax-deductible. Please support with a monthly pledge or one-time donation at RadioFreeBrooklyn.org slash donate. If you'd like to listen to RFB when you're not in front of your computer, please download our free mobile app for iPhone and Android, available in the App Store for iPhone or the Google Play Store for Android. And lastly, please be sure to subscribe to our monthly newsletter for the latest news about new programming and upcoming RFB events. You can sign up at RadioFreeBrooklyn.org slash newsletter. So, Gigi Allen, you know, I got to say right now, you are just so much braver than I have ever been in my life. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's like, uh, what do you say? Necessity breeds something bravery, right? (laughs) (laughs) Something like that. Oh, let me quick one little thing. Mongrel bitch, Lisa, Laura, and Charlotte. Okay, there we go. Brain is kicking in. Um, 209 East 7th Street. Let me just uh, continue a little 
bit on uh, yes, on what please. we were talking about. Um, so I moved into 2097 Street in, in 1992, and uh, 209 was one of the buildings that had been pretty much gutted on the whole east wing. And this was not a landlord burning down the building. This was an accidental fire that started on the second floor in the east wing and uh, quickly spread all the way up to the roof and the roof got uh, completely destroyed. Um, but the the uh, west side and the north side of the building was still standing. So this is like, okay, Lori said squatters. It's like, <laughs> hey, yeah, this is a great place. This is awesome. Let's move in. <laughs> you know, it's ridiculous. Yes. You know, it feels like we were, you know, the Vikings going to Iceland and being like, yeah. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, so, so it was pretty hardcore living. I mean, it was, it was brutal. And I've read the, some of your descriptions. Oh my God. And it was like back when, um, when we had winters mm-hmm. and, the pipes would freeze sometimes, and we had wood-burning stoves. And made our, out of? Um, well, a lot of them were made out of the those big metal barrels, mm-hmm. right? Like oil barrels or something. And uh, But I actually was was given a beautiful wood-burning stove, uh, Loanne Beausoleil. Um, Thank you so much. <laughs> she gave me this beautiful wood burning stove. So, but still, it was really rough living. You know, you tape off one room and, you know, have these big plastic tarps and put rocks on the bottom of them. And then you'd have to shovel snow drifts out of your hallway because there's no windows in the back. And, uh, well, there's windows, but no glass windows mm-hmm. kind of thing. Um, but uh, just to say that we really earned our place. Mm-hmm. Um, we worked so hard to rebuild it. And this was what the organized squatter movement was about in the Lower East Side in the 80s into the 90s into the 2000s. Um, we, uh, we had an agenda, which was to build homes and occupy them. And we were not just um, trying to do stuff haphazardly. We we were like learning the building codes. We mm-hmm. did we, anything that we did, at least in my building. And luckily, I had people in the building who really knew their shit. You know, people who were, um, you know, knew architecture. We had Michael Schenker, who was the great electrician. People were plumbers. Um, there was a lot of people who professionally knew how to do a lot of this stuff. And we specifically did all the work up to code because it was our intention to build these homes and be able to keep them. Mm-hmm. Although, you know, for me, and I know a lot of us, it was kind of like, in a lot of ways, a pipe dream. We're just kind of like, well, it's never going to happen. But, you know, let's just keep going. Mm-hmm. Let's just keep going, keep going, see how long we can do this. And and then it's like we actually won the the right to uh, own our building as a as a specific uh, form of lower lower um, low income housing cooperative. Uh, the our specific designation is an HDFC, which I can't remember right off the top of my head what it stands for the words. But um, I have to say that. Uh, Margarita Lopez was a huge 
a huge reason why this deal went through. She was a community council member at the time, yeah. correct? Yeah, and then Rosie Mendez after her, um, who helped out a lot in the neighborhood as well. But um, Margarita Lopez was our um, our conduit, our you know our our connector to UHAB, which is the Urban Homesteaders Assistance Board, and UHAB was the organization that helped. I think it's like 10 squats in the Lower East Side uh, to convert to low-income housing. And it was very difficult. It was a lot of, you know, a lot of negotiation went into it. And, um, but we run, we won the right to own our apartments, but um, the, we are highly regulated as to what we can do with our apartments. You know, if we sell them, we decide to sell our apartment. It's, you know, if you sold it on the market, you would make, you know, a million bucks, Mm -hmm. but we are limited, very limited as to what we can sell our apartments for. Um, And that was part of the whole deal, you know, it's because we didn't, uh, you know, the city didn't want us just, you know, getting ownership and then, you know, selling it for a million dollars and, and leaving. Well, why not? And, well, the thing was, I mean, the whole reason why we got this deal um, was because we had created low-income housing. So we had to sign um, <clears throat> a regulatory agreement. And to become an HDFC, which low-income housing co-op, um, we had to agree to certain terms. And so in order to own our apartments, in order to... Um, had, there's advantages also, you know, tax breaks and different kind of um, okay. advantages that a low-income building will have. Um, so uh, we had to, this is what we had to negotiate with the city in order to gain ownership of our buildings. Um, if we, that's why I'm saying it was a lot of negotiation. Mm-hmm. You know, the terms went back and forth and back and forth until the deal actually went through. But it's like, you know, if we if we stood up and said, yeah, I'm going to sell my building, uh, my apartment for a million dollars, then, you know, we wouldn't get the deal, right? Okay. We had, and um, another thing, <clears throat> another thing that uh, is interesting about the whole uh, conversion of our buildings from squats to low-income housing, um, uh, I think it was like, might have been around, the, I think it was like around the, uh, the end of the infamous Beelzebub Giuliani era, and isn't it um, great seeing him fucking I fall apart? No, <laughs> I know, like the hair dye running down, farting all over the place, like, filing for bankruptcy. Oh man, I love it so much. It's so but, good. Yeah, but yeah. So at that time, um. Uh, he was we'll tell, he was terrible. To, oh my to god, artists, he was such a the, devil. And he he um what it was like lifestyle crimes or you know he he had this thing I can't remember what it was but it was kind of like uh, lifestyle crime or something like what that. Did and it was call like it? what did he call it? I know I'm trying to remember. Uh, At first, I want to go after the squeegee guys. Yeah, 
<laughs> the squeegee guys. Oh man, love the squeegee guys. Um, but yeah, it was, and that was all about like uh, if you're being a nuisance in the neighborhood. Mm-hmm. You know, you you could just be a nuisance, and mm-hmm. the police would come and harass you and, and arrest you. But um, but uh, yeah, quality of life. Quality of life. Yeah, he really it. fucked with quality the quality of life. of life of a lot of artists. Yeah, he really fucked with our quality of life. Is one of the reasons. Well, anyway. Well, one thing I was going to say, like in mentioning Giuliani, that what happened was happening around the time that we got this deal um, with UHAB to convert our buildings was a time when the city was. Yeah, my um, sister's texting in quality of life crimes. <laughs> All life right. Crimes. Thank you, Nancy. Yeah, thank you, Nancy. Awesome. Um, but, uh, but so, so yeah, around this time, see, the thing was, it was very convenient for actually for the city to have us, um, applying to become legitimate low, low income housing because they were bound under some regulations to have, they had to have a certain amount of low income housing in the Lower East Side, right? So there's all these empty lots, and then there's us, right? So it was actually a big advantage for the city that we already had everything built. Mm-hmm. And they could just be like, oh, we built low-income housing. We provided low-income housing. Mm-hmm. So the city could say that, right? Right. And then these empty lots, then they could, you know, I think they were mostly not city-owned, but still it was much easier for people to get permits to build like high-end housing because the city had, you know, fulfilled all these requirements of having a certain amount of low-income housing, you know? Mm -hmm. I just, you know, it's just one of those things where, where you see that, that it wasn't just the city being so generous and benevolent to us. And are you still at that Yes. You're still there. Yes. Of the of the original people who did this incredible work, uh how many have remained? In my building? Yes. Actually <clears throat> actually quite a few. I couldn't give you a number on that, but there there are quite a few. Um and there has been some Is uh, there any strain between like the the wealthy people who would be moving in now and the and the People who there's no wealthy people moving in. Oh, there aren't. No, no, no. We that's because of our regulatory agreement, because of all the regulations, and because we are an HGFC co-op, we have to abide by a whole lot of requirements and guidelines. If anybody is going to move into any of the squats in the Lower East Side that are now former squats, um, anyone I, I know about the UHAB ones, but I'm sure there's regulations like these for all the other um all the other co-ops in new york but there is we are very very strictly monitored as to who we can have moving into the building so if there is an apartment available we have to post it we have to have people submit applications and we go through all the applications the, if you want to apply for a space, you have to um, show like that you are within a certain um, realm of median income. 
So if somebody is a rich person making lots of money, they cannot apply. Okay. Our building is run by a board, right? We have a board and our, our building is unique because every single member of the building is on the board, which can get a little messy (laughs) in terms of, you know, getting along with people. But at the same time, it's kind of like the ultimate democracy, right? So, um, so yeah, a lot of the buildings, well, I don't want to say a lot because I'm not really sure, but they're, you know, I think a, a good amount of buildings, they're, uh, are run, they have, uh, managing, um, agents that they pay to manage the building. So for us, it is all done on a volunteer basis. And it's a lot of work, actually. You know, we, we have, um, we have uh, certain offices that we vote in, like uh, um, the co-managers, the co-secretaries, et cetera. We have meetings four times a year. It's like um, we, we manage our own building. It's extremely difficult, um, but we have our housing. And yeah. One of the things I was hoping to accomplish with this interview, and I do believe I have, is to dispel mm-hmm. any myths that... Uh, squat stutters are in any way lazy oh yeah you know um i i yeah we i can't even like i'm gonna explode i I believe i have accomplished one of my goals for this interview another (laughs) one of my goals for this interview (laughs) is to make sure people can find out where they can find your art and where they can uh purchase materials your zines your your various different things that you do so please let uh, folks know because we only have like fif- less than 15 minutes that oh fast. and i have to tell some more of those crazy stories yeah. i want to tell you the the other gas station one and the electrical one from 209 so first let me just say um the if you want to know more about the actual real history of lower east side squatting uh the museum of reclaimed urban space it's called morris one fifty five Avenue yeah, C. One fifty five Avenue C. It is in the storefront of the now legal uh, C Squat, which is you know infamous for um, for all of its like crazy punk shows and, mm-hmm. and other amazing stuff. Um, but yeah, we only have a little time left. Let me tell you about my friend Michael Schenker because he was actually one of the people who got me. Um, encouraged me into becoming a squatter at 209. Um, it was actually Rolando um, who does all the recycling stuff. He's actually the one who brought me to 209. And I worked my butt off for like three months. Um, this was back in, in 1992, in the spring of 1992. And, and then I got voted into the building. But like I was saying, at that time, it was so raw and the whole, you know, Eastside burnt, completely gutted. Everything was super raw. We had we had no electricity. I should say no legitimate electricity. We had no plumbing. We had no heat. We had you know nothing nothing like that. Um, but uh, we would uh, connect uh, in the manhole to. So we would like we had a hookup from the building uh, in the manhole. We would connect to Con Ed. Right. So we were pirating electricity and we did that for a long time. 
problem is that sometimes Con Ed would find out about it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and we had we had to get rid of one specific uh, member, a specifically violent member of 209. Um, and we had to eject him from the building and it took quite a while and he had a lot of stuff and we just, you know, it was really a, a, an ordeal for us to get him out. But so then he started calling Con Ed and the fire department like nonstop. So we basically at that point, you know, they had cut us off in the manhole and then we were, so we were then hooked up to the light post for a while. <laughs> and, you know, you just don't get as much power from the light post <laughs> as you do with a direct hookup, right? I mean, at least we weren't like the Philadelphia squad, which uh, hooked up to one of this, the um, crossing signal okay. lamps. And they, so they'd have electricity when the light was green. <laughs> <laughs> I kid you not. <laughs> it was, that's like one of the, the hilarious stories that you know that you never forget. Um, but uh, but yeah, we had to hook up to the street lamp, and there was this whole period of time I remember where we had to um, uh, that we had to not hook up anywhere. So we had no electricity. But what we did was we had the wires already to to connect to the street lamp, so we would go out at like 6 p.m. or whenever Con Ed got off the clock, we would go hook up. And then by 6 a.m. when Con Ed comes back on the clock, we had to disconnect. But then the weekends were great because we would have electricity all weekend. But but so, yeah, it was like that was one of the things in the Lower East Side with the squats. It's like hooking your electricity up. How do you like hooking up your pirate electricity? So Michael was kind of a myth. Deb Lee, they were like the... They were like the, you know, the pirate, they were the pirates. They would do, you know, the connections. And uh, so Con Ed knew who Michael Schenker was. You know, Michael Schenker, one of the sweetest, awesomest people in the world, musician, activist. Um, he worked with Living Theater for a very long time doing their music. Um, and, uh, and yeah, just super, super activists, fearless activists. And, and yeah, he hooked us up in the street. And so, so Con Ed knew Michael, and they knew him from from other buildings too. And so there was a t- there was a while when it was really precarious, um, and you know Con Ed was watching us. And and so one morning I wake up, and and then suddenly the power goes off. So I'm looking out the front of the building, and I see Con Ed down there in the in the you know in the hole. And I ran and got Michael, but he was already in the front in another apartment, right? And he's like yelling down at them. And they're like, we're looking for Michael Schenker. He's like, he's a skinny guy with red hair and glasses, (laughs) right? And Michael's like, I know who you're talking about. (laughs) He didn't have his glasses on, right? (laughs) It was hysterical. And then what happened was um, Conrad left. Right. And and what happens when Conrad comes in and, and, and tears your connection out? What happens is that um, is that they throw cement into that, like into your connection so that you can't access it anymore. Right. So, you know, I worked with cement for a long time. Anyone who's squatted Lower East Side crumbling tenements has worked with cement a lot. So and then uh, what happened was as soon as they turned the corner, Michael Schenker was like, down, down the street, down 
Um, and like I helped him pull the manhole off and he jumps in the manhole and he's like pulling out the wet cement. Right. <laughs> and it's hilarious. There's all this like wet cement flying. He's like, no way. They're not going to take our connection. And, uh, and he comes out of the manhole and he's like, you know, covered in wet cement. And, uh, and he had a note. He had a note. Con Ed had left him a note in, in the manhole. It <laughs> <laughs> said, um, it said, Michael, if you connect one more time, we will lock you up. Okay, Mr. Schenker. Wow. <laughs> yeah. And you know what? I um I don't know what happened to the note. And I have you know, I have I worked for so long, like archiving everything, preserving everything. I know. I know a lot of your zines are uh, now in a museum. Oh, yeah. I have a, a zine archive in the Minneapolis Institute of Art. And my personal archives are now at Columbia University. And you'll be hearing soon in the future about some events happening there. But, um, but yeah, that's one thing that I wish I had. Is but that again, where note. can people buy your your art? Oh yeah, um, you know it's. I really need to set up some kind of online thing, but I I do sell stuff th- through Brooklyn. I think it's like Brooklyn dot org. Um, it's like Brooklyn, but without the R, so it's like Brooklyn, and they do a lot of really amazing like artist books, artist publications. And Brooklyn is actually the organization that um, negotiated the um, my zine archive to Minneapolis and my archive up to Columbia, with much thanks from Karen Green at Columbia. Um, but also, like I was mentioning earlier, Morris uh, Museum of Reclaimed Urban Space. I sell zines from there. And that's 155 Avenue C. I really need to, yeah, I really need to get some kind of better way of uh, getting getting stuff distributed. I've kind of like fallen off the map a little bit in the past few years. And it's due to some pretty serious health issues that I'm dealing with. But um, I'm starting to try to get back uh, on the map a little bit. You hey, know? you know, there's nothing wrong with people getting off their asses and going over to 155 Avenue C, okay? <laughs> well, I got to get over there too because they're sold out of whatever I had there. But um, but yeah, Faceboy came to my Christmas sale there. I did. I was so glad I made it. I know, I know. It was really great. Um, yeah, it was, it was more sparsely attended this year, which, um, you know, it... it it was really fun, but it was also, um, I was hoping that I would make a little more cash from that one. But that yeah, was that like, reminds me, actually, I, uh, I owe you $3 because <laughs> I did the math wrong. I, I, was, I was originally going to buy three cards, and then I bought four cards. And then when I did the math to pay you, and I did just, folks, this is radio. This so you is didn't it. See, I, I, I did just give her $3 that I owed you. And yeah, I, I had done the math for, for three cards, not four, so... Uh, now now we're even now we're square yeah so i was just gonna mention one quick thing and i i thank you for this every little dollar counts to me right now um one thing uh so we did this uh the holiday market uh uh back in in at the end of december right before the holidays and i actually got my wrist broken um the day before our or a couple of days before our 
our big sale and I got hit by a e-bike um, that was going really, really fast. And it ran me down and broke my wrist. Um, I have to say, though, that getting hit by an e-bike is a lot less um, painful than getting run over by an SUV, because that also happened to me. Damn, fly. <laughs> I know, man. It's like it's like a fly with a swatter chasing after it, right? Um, but yeah, so I, I have this broken wrist. And right now, I just got my hard cast off. Right. And now I have a, a removable brace, which is really nice. But, you know, it happened on December 20th and it, it broke my wrist on my right hand. So I haven't been able to draw with my right hand. So I decided to teach myself to draw with my left hand. And so right now, if you pick up a copy of The Village Sun, uh, not The Villager, The Village Sun, uh, editor Lincoln Anderson, and uh, he printed my my lefty comic, and I did. I think I did a really good job. I mean, it took me a long time, but the lettering turned out so good. And now I'm a little bit ambidextrous. And actually, right now, because I still have the brace on my right hand, my left hand is actually better for writing. <laughs> my left hand is actually even more legible. <laughs> oh wow! I know it's crazy. It's crazy. So that's been like a really positive thing. Um, you know, of course, the e-bike guy just jumped back on his bike and took off. Um, it's a real problem that you know we're having, which I'm sure everyone out there, if you're in New York and you walk around, you're going to understand what I'm talking about. Yeah, we could get into that, but we don't really have time for it. Uh, we've only got less than two minutes left to this show. And I do want to say, uh, you know, thank you so much for being here. I know that you don't do these interviews very often, at all, very often at all. Well, it's just been a long time, you know. And like I said, I'm trying to get back on the map and trying to get like my stuff back out there. Well, you know, we have barely touched anything uh, on on the list here uh so i would love to have you back sometime oh that this would is, be great this, it, yeah it's been great and 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 also i, I want to thank you for starting that sunday night open mic i want to thank you for for deciding to walk away from it because i never would have thought of being an open mic host yeah i can't really take to, i, take, I can't take credit so for much, it though. i got so much out of it it was such a great part of my life and there are people that are still in my life that that were through that and um uh coming up next on radio free brooklyn is the circuit with courtney love she is here and uh uh i like to always say and i mean it folks show yourself some love and show some love to others. It is important, and you know that it is. Hooray! And next week, Lucille will be back. Uh, she was out for the past two weeks, and I'm pretty sure she's going to be back. I might not be back. I kind of love watching the SAG Awards, so Lucille might be running the show uh, next week. And then following that, uh, we should both be back in the studio. And uh, that's all the time we have. Good night, everybody. Have a wonderful Saturday.